You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. Would you please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, extraordinarily familiar uh, passage this morning, uh, but I want us to look at this passage as we prepare to, uh, to right here, uh, see uh, men become ordained as deacons in our church. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is what we'll be looking at. I'll give a little bit of a justification as to why we're looking at this particular passage as it, ha- as it relates to uh, guys that are called to serve as deacons. Uh, little theologians, I just want you to draw a picture of someone working. That's, that's it. Just draw a picture of someone working. Now, if you're uh, really industrious, get the joke, you can draw a number of people working together because I think when you do that, you'll actually have a pretty decent picture of the church. The church is made up of workers. So that's your task, uh, little theologians. Ephesians 2 is where we are. Does anyone here need a Bible? Uh, Patrick will get a Bible to you if you need one. Ephesians 2, a very short passage this morning. Let's pray together before I read that passage to us. Father, we love your word. We ask that you would use the minister of this place, myself, for your own glory that I would hold forth your word, that that would burrow in the hearts of the hearers by your Holy Spirit. Father, would you use me for your holy purpose of shaping us as Christians through the Holy Spirit working in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our passage, Ephesians 2, uh, uh, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of our Lord. You know, everyone wants to be uh, wrapped up in something that involves a purpose. I've spoken with a, a person looking for work, and they have said to me that they want to work with a company that has a certain mission or a vision of some sort. I am just old enough to find that to be a little bit of an odd expectation from your employer. A job's a job. I guess I'm just getting old. But the sentiment actually has value that people want to work with a company that actually is going to do something, has a larger vision, some kind of great purpose. And I think that we all want to be wrapped up in some kind of great purpose. Now, as a Christian, I'm going to say that that's because all of us have been cast by God with the Imago Dei, the image of God, His thumbprint, as it were, on us, His signature on us. He made us to be a people that would worship something or someone greater and larger than ourselves, that we would get lost into a larger purpose than a purpose that I could bundle up inside my own heart. 
I think that I'm stating a tautology, something that is philosophically always true. Every human being wants to be a part of a great purpose, a great mission. In fact, every human being is asking, what is the chief end of man? Now, if you are um, a reader of confessional statements, you may recognize that question. That question comes from the Westminster Shorter and Larger uh, Catechism. Uh, these are documents in the church that were written in the 1640s. And the reason I want to tell you that is so that you would see that you're not the first one to ask, what is my purpose in life? What am I supposed to be doing? These ministers wrote this in the 17th century, what is the chief end of man? And they're addressing Christians so that there would be a distinctly Christian response to that question. True, every human being is looking for a greater, grander purpose. But these men found answers in Scripture that would actually address that question that many of our non-believing friends and family members are asking themselves. And so the question goes, what is the chief end of man? And the answer goes like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. On the one hand, you might quibble with that. There's something rather unsatisfactory in that answer. The answer doesn't seem to resonate with what you thought your great purpose was or what your company describes as the great purpose of humankind. But the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I'm sharing this with you so that you would not think of yourself as the first one to wonder, what is my purpose? Many have gone before you. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there is an answer in Scripture. And in fact, what we read is a part of God's purpose for us in that profession of faith as Christians. But let me first give you a couple of examples of how other Christians from times in the past have asked this question. I want you to hear the question. They come from these uh, documents that are, that are confessional statements in the life of the church. But I want you to listen carefully with the question that you too might long for the answer, as did the original authors of these documents. Listen to this question. This is a confessional statement. How many things are necessary for you to know that you may live and die happily? That is a very contemporary question. Don't you think? You're not the first one, Christian, to wonder about that. I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't feel as happy as I think I ought to feel. And I'd like to know what it's like to be happy as a Christian. You're not the first to ask that question. Do you want to hear the answer by chance, or can I just move on to another question? This comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. How many things are necessary for you to know that you may live and die happily? Three. Isn't that great? I love clear-headed theologians. There's three. I expect theologians to say two and three quarters. Two clear ones or two narrow ones and about 12 broad ones. But no, the answer is three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. As a Christian, we believe that you will never be happy unless you understand how great your sins and miseries are. To understand that well 
is a key to your happiness. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is to, uh, is, is phrased this way, how I may be delivered from my sins and miseries. That's a key to happiness as well. Not to be left in those sins and miseries, but to actually know how to be delivered from them. And then here's the third. How I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. That's a good purpose for you, Christian. To know how it is that you can possibly use your life in such a way that you can express such gratitude to God for the kind of deliverance that He has given you. An awareness of your sins and miseries and a knowledge of how you're delivered from those sins and miseries. I love this answer. How many things are necessary for you to know how you might live and die happily? That third one how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. Here's another question. Uh, What is it that enlivens the life of the Christian? What gives life to the Christian? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. I want you to see where I'm going here. Yeah, part of your happiness as a Christian, part of what knowing what it is to enliven your life of joy as a Christian before God is to live a life that you delight in because you're living a life according to the will of God in all good works. And then finally, this is a contemporary statement of faith. Uh, some of our non-denominational brothers and sisters will cling to this uh, confessional document. It's called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It's written in the uh, late 70s, uh, signed by guys like R.C. Sproul, uh, Packer. And it goes like this. It says, As God's image bearer, man was to hear God's word addressed to him and to respond in the joy of adoring obedience. To respond in the joy of of adoring obedience. If my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, why am I so bored with life? And if my chief end as a Christian is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, why am I so easily distracted by such trite things? Remarkably contemporary. Well, I'm not going to answer the question exactly, but I am going to uh, share with you what this passage has to say in verse 10, that by God's word, your good works as a Christian are a part of your happiness as a Christian. The grace of God that you have received in in Christ Jesus, it turns out from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and in fact from all of Scripture, but we're looking at Ephesians, it turns out that the grace of God that he has for us in Christ Jesus is a grace that actually works. It's a grace that bears fruit. It's a grace that gives us things to do. And that's what I hope to prove to you from this passage. Uh, So why is this a deacon passage? Well, here's why this has come to my mind as a deacon passage. I recently read a very uh, old book. I'm ashamed that it has been such a long time that I've read um, since uh, I've never read the book until recently, and I'm I'm a little bit ashamed of that. It's a book by a a CRC, not a pastor, but by an elder, Christian Reformed Church as a denomination. This book was written in 1980, not by a minister, but by an elder in his church. The book is called The Deacon's Handbook, and it's by uh, Gerard Berghoff. I think it's Berghoff. He's Dutch. I could spell it, but 
let's just pretend it's pronounced Berghoff. And Mr. Berghoff says this. He says, look, there's something about a deacon in the life of the church that they resolve a theological quandary, and that is the theological quandary between faith and works. I'm saved by faith, and yet there's still some works that I have to perform as a Christian, but I'm performing those works uh, not as a means of gaining salvation, but as fruit from that salvation that's already been gained. And that can, you know, we can kind of like uh, turn, us, turn ourselves into a corkscrew and get burrowed down on this issue to such a degree as uh, people in our tradition, Presbyterian and Reformed people, where we just don't talk about works at all. It just opens up too many cans of worms. But what uh, Mr. Berghoff sees in a deacon in his church is he says that deacons have an ability to resolve this theological quandary. And they do it not with their words, they do it in their lives. They may do it in their with their words as well. But according to this elder, he says, look, there's something about these deacons that they take faith and works and they like put them together and we watch their lives and they just exemplify something about salvation in Christ Jesus through their works. And what, what Berghoff says is he says, look, when a, when a person first becomes a Christian, generally, they, uh, maybe he's, again, just talking about Presbyterian and Reformed folks like us. He says, generally, they're so focused on grace that they really don't allow works to enter into the equation at all. And they give themselves all kinds of permission to live bad lives because they're saved by grace. And Mr. Berghoff says that that's generally how Christians will begin. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I could go either way on that. Sometimes Christians can be the opposite and very, very legalistic. But he says that a Christian might begin that way, but over time they begin to sense the words of Isaiah 29, where Isaiah says that some draw near to God with their mouth and honor with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he says a Christian, as they grow in their maturity, they begin to see that they are called to be voluntarily thankful to God. He calls it voluntary gratitude. They begin to see that I'm supposed to come before God with a heart filled with thanks for what he's done for me. Mr. Berghoff says that this is the, normally the second step in a Christian's maturity. He says the third is this. He says that a Christian will go from not giving any regard to works at all to then beginning to see works as an expression of gratitude before God, to come before Him sincerely, and that's voluntary. But then the third step is they begin to see, wait a minute, in God's Word, this voluntary gratitude really is a mandatory gratitude. We are actually commanded to come before God with thankful hearts. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, says our Savior in Matthew 5.16. I like that switch. I like the switch a lot. That we go from a voluntary gratitude to a mandatory gratitude where we see that this is exactly what God wants of me. That God is filling me with thankfulness that I might then turn my life over to Him and seek His glory rather than my own. And this, uh, the, the author says that deacons go one step further they see all of this, voluntary gratitude for what, what God has done for them in Christ Jesus, mandatory gratitude, and they're actually called to do this with the gifts and the skills and the abilities that they have received from God to work. But they go one step further. 
And he says, when he looks at deacons in his church, he says, it's perceived, when I look at these deacons, I perceive in them men who understand that faith and behavior for the Christian actually merge. Actually merge. I've read a lot of theology, and Jonathan Edwards in particular is a theologian who would talk a lot about every person merging their faith and their behavior together. That is, no one does anything that they don't have some kind of faith foundation to do, believer or non-believer. The things that you do actually shed light on your heart. This is Jonathan Edwards writing in the 1740s in America. But Berghoff says that deacons have this remarkable ability to merge faith and behavior in such a way, and he says this, he says, that they are no longer able to separate salvation by faith from the doing of good works through faith in obedience to the will of God. They actually aren't able to separate those things. They have a hard time being around people who have those things separated, faith and good works. He continues by saying, the desire to do good in gratitude for salvation is now seen not simply as evidence of rebirth in Christ Jesus, it is rebirth in Christ Jesus. This is an elder looking at the deacons of his church, and an elder who has a wonderful writing ministry and has written this book, again published in 1980. And as I have been reading this book and, and thinking about that, that physical material relationship between faith and works, uh, a, a topic that I generally approach in a more analytical, intellectual way, trying to wrap my, ma my mind around how those things work. You just look at a deacon and you see that theology transpiring in their lives. This man sees it in his church. As I'm reading his book, I'm, I'm, begin I'm being trained to see it in my church, and I begin to look at these deacons and say, man, this guy's right. That's one of the reasons why I admire these deacons. If anyone knows the quote on the front of your worship bulletin, you are officially a, the a theology nerd. I will let you wonder if that is a compliment or not. You're a theology nerd because this is the motto of Calvin's life. And this is what came into my mind as I'm reading uh, Berg Berghoff's work. Cremeum tibiophro domine prompte and sincera. My heart I give to you, Lord, willingly and sincerely. And I just think about deacons doing that in their lives. You, you see them in their, in their love for brothers and sisters in the church, in their love for individuals for whom they don't, they don't know their faith relationship with God. And I see them willingly giving their heart to the Lord in that service. It's a wonderful motto. I want to say two things about this, this passage. First, the work of the Lord in grace, verses 8 and 9. And the second, the work of the Lord in a grace that works, verse 10. Look at verse 8 says, it says, By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. In the Greek, this word for have been saved stands out as a middle passive. It's clearly something that has happened to the Christian, not something the Christian has done. The Christian is passive. They are not the doers of their salvation. By grace, you have been saved. And that can be offensive, can't it? I think of myself as a doer. I do things with my life. But it is by grace that you have been saved says verse 8. And we might then naturally think, well, who is the doer? 
Well, you've heard that also in verse 8. By grace you've been saved. And this is a biblical expression of God's work. This Greek word charis occurs some 147 times in the New Testament alone. And it always refers to, actually not always, about four or five instances where it's uncertain. But it almost always, 147 times, refers to the work of God. And so not only might it be offensive to you that you don't get to be the doer of your salvation, it might be doubly offensive to you that someone else is the doer of your salvation. You need to be saved. You cannot be saved. Not even the Christian can claim to have been the worker of their salvation. It must be done by someone else. And if God is the worker and I'm the receiver, how hard it is for me to believe that. I want to suggest to you who are here as a Christian that you need to know that this is a very offensive suggestion, that God is the worker and you are but the receiver. And in fact, you aren't the first one to be offended by that. I think that there were some in the Ephesian church that were also offended because Paul seems to be saying over and over and over again, I count three times in this one passage, that this is indeed the truth. He says in verse 8, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. That's the same thing that he has said to them. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. As if there were doubters in the audience. And Paul is saying, did I stutter? Did I stutter? Let me say it to you again. By the way, if you wonder what kind of theological conversation you might have with me after a worship service, I want to encourage anyone and everyone to please come and let's have a theological discussion of sorts. But let me just kind of plant a seed in that in verse 8, that word this, T-H-I-S, actually shows up in the Greek and there are numerous articles about what this means. What does this refer to? fascinating discussion, and I can go ahead and say this, that denominations have been founded based upon how to read Ephesians 2, verse 8. What is this? And I want to tell you this morning that I believe that this refers to the whole initiative of salvation and every aspect of salvation. The this is everything that God does in salvation. What do I mean by that? Even my faith, saying yes to Him in the gospel, is his work. You see what I mean when I say that in Ephesians 2.8, that word this, tauta in Greek, actually gives birth to denominations. But I believe that this refers to God's entire initiative and every aspect of salvation. And I think Paul goes on in verse 9 to, to echo that when he says, it is not a result of works, lest anyone would be confused unless anyone would think that Paul perhaps is mistaken, didn't really write what he's just written, he says it is not a result of works. What he means by that is it's not a result of your works because God is most certainly at work. But it's not the result of your works. And the third time also in verse 9, Paul, sa Paul says, so that or in order that no one not a single Christian may boast, so that no one may boast. God is very protective of His work. God creates a wonderful piece of art, and He sets a century before that art that you might not deface it. God is very protective of His work, so that no one 
not even a Christian, especially not a Christian, may boast. Now, this is a very important doctrine in Protestant Christianity. This doctrine has a Latin name, as you can imagine, sola gratia, uh, a name that was uh, established somewhere around 1530s. Uh, God is not motivated by anything, by anyone, in order to save. This is a doctrine that some, some call a cardinal doctrine, uh, uh, the pivotal doctrine. Uh, much of our other doctrines that we hold to as Protestant Christians revolve around this one. God is not motivated by anything. He is not motiv- by, motivated by any person in any way as he saves. Protestantism 101, verse 10 now. The work of the Lord in grace is a grace that works. For we are God's workmanship. Do you hear that in verse 10? It's one thing to say that God is a creator, but Christian, you should add to that. Not only is he the creator of all life, filling lungs with air, so too is he the creator of new life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says we are a new creation. God created all things and God creates new life. For we are God's workmanship, Paul says in verse 10. But look where he goes. A weird curve is about to happen. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Does any of us in this room set out to do anything not knowing where it will lead? I think probably so, maybe as we're tinkering. But do you think God ever does that? Does God ever fashion something halfway and make a decision three-quarters of the way through that process? Does he ever do that? Does he, like, fiddle with his hands until he sees a shape form, and then he goes, oh, that would be fantastic, and then he goes ahead and he finishes it. God doodles, does he? God doesn't doodle. God has an objective for everything that he does. Your salvation this morning as a Christian, there is an objective tied to that salvation that you profess in Jesus Christ that God is drawing you to himself, that you might live with his only begotten son face to face. And right now, you may be writhing in pain. You may be struggling mightily. But God does not create new life to see where it might lead you. So when Paul says here that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, we begin to ask the question, what does that created refer to? Does it refer to the creation of the physical world, or does it refer to the creation of new life in my heart? And I think it refers to the latter. Christian, your salvation is a salvation with a purpose. That, you, that this new life was created in Christ Jesus, that it would be a new life that gives fruit, that produces good works. That's why Paul adds, which God prepared beforehand, which is really an irksome phrase, isn't it? That God would actually create me in such a way that he knows the good works that I'll be performing in the future. And yet, if I look back on my life, I think that I've probably performed maybe three, possibly four good works with my whole life. I hope I'm exaggerating. 46 years old, I hope that I've done more than four good works. But even as I think about having done four good works, it is astounding to think that God knew that beforehand and that he created me that I might perform those actions. 
you know, you want to know what purpose you're a part of as a Christian. This is it. It's Ephesians 2.10. It's your purpose. Your purpose is to give everything that you have to God. That God might use you for His own glory. For His project. You know, Jesus asserts His kingship over us in this passage. You know, this passage is actually written by our King, given to us by our King. That we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. He says it in His earthly life in John chapter 5, but no one really got it. He says in John chapter 5 that we should abide in the life that He has given us. That we should live in Him and He in us in such a way that we would bear much fruit. And Paul, he looks back at John chapter 5 and he gets it. And that's why he tells us that we should walk in them. Them referring to the good works. I want you to hear what this, this old guy from the 1980s says. The Dutch guy whose name I can't pronounce. He says, by walking in good works, we have entered into the sphere of God's own activity. Do you want to know what your purpose is? It's to not have your own purpose. Do you want to know how happiness happens to you? When it's happiness that you have in Christ Jesus. It's it's when you understand your sin to such a degree that the deliverance is almost more than you can bear. Do you want to know what your purpose is in life? Stop having a purpose and receive the purpose of someone else. And look, there's a lot of safety in this purpose. If you have your own purpose, you're going to be scrutinized like crazy. You're going to scrutinize yourself. You're going to destroy yourself, I think. You're going to need to be rescued from that purpose because you're never going to meet all of your expectations. It's part of John Stott's own conversion story when he says, I I realized that I couldn't stand up even to my own standards. And you're not going to be able to stand up to the standards of your own purpose. Do it now. Get rid of that purpose. Stop with that purpose. Because the success of God's purpose doesn't rest on you. And that's what you really need to hear. And that's what I need to hear. You don't need a purpose whose success actually depends upon you. That doesn't help your Christian walk at all. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, he says that we're confident not because of our abilities, but because God is the great completer. He's the great completer. He who began his work in us, he will bring it to completion. And so let's allow that purpose to be the purpose of someone else. Let's submit to someone else's purpose. And let's trust that the person who owns that purpose is actually going to bring it to completion. So that when I'm hurting, and when I'm sad, and when I feel like a failure, I'm not going to fall upon my own purpose. I'm going to fall back upon the purpose that my Lord and Savior has for me. And then I'll begin to see that there is a purpose in the pain and the suffering. That it can be used to the glory of someone else, not my own glory. That I can actually willingly die in this life knowing that the one who has the power to take not only my body, but my body and my soul is not going to take it. He will complete that good work. Well, I offer this uh, passage simply as a reminder of what deacons are good at. I'm not praising overly deacons. You'll hear that later on in the service. 
But this is God's word to us. We look to our deacons. We expect them to show us this in their lives and to do it in a way that is riddled with sin because they're not the completer. Jesus is the completer. Let's look to our deacons. Let's praise God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you. We thank you for instructing us. We thank you that the salvation that you have given to us, that you have worked for us, is a salvation in itself that is marked by your work. Your signature is on it. Our Holy Father, would you cause fruit to grow from this salvation as you've promised that it would? And Father, would it grow wildly? Would it just grow wildly? Make us good workers before our Lord and Jesus. Amen.